Chapter 2. The Nation and the Time We now approach the time when, after thirty years of silence and obscurity in Nazareth, Jesus was to step forth on the public stage. This is, therefore, the point at which to take a survey of the circumstances of the nation in whose midst his work was to be done, and also to form a clear conception of his character and aims. Every great biography is a record of the entrance into the world of a new force, bringing with it something different from all that was there before, and of the way in which it gradually gets itself incorporated with the old, so as to become a part of the future. Obviously, therefore, two things are needed by those who want to understand it. First, a clear comprehension of the nature of the new force itself, and secondly, a view of the world with which it is to be incorporated. Without the latter, the specific difference of the former cannot be understood, nor can the manner of its reception be appreciated such as the welcome with which it is received, or the opposition with which it has to struggle. Jesus brought with him into the world more that was original and destined to modify the future history of mankind than anyone else who has ever entered it. However, we can neither understand him nor the circumstances that he encountered in seeking to incorporate with history the gifts he brought without a clear view of the condition of the sphere within which his life was to be passed. The Setting of His Life When we finish the last chapter of the Old Testament and turn the page and see the first chapter of the New, we are very likely to think that we are still among the same people and the same state of things in Matthew that we have left in Malachi. However, that idea would not be true. Four centuries had passed between Malachi and Matthew, and had brought about as thorough of a change in Israel as a period of the same length would bring about in any country. The very language of the people had been changed, and customs, ideas, groups, and institutions had come into existence that would almost have prevented Malachi, if he had risen from the dead, from recognizing his country. Politically, the nation had passed through extraordinary changes. After the exile, it had been organized as a kind of sacred state under its high priests. But conqueror after conqueror had since marched over it, changing everything. The old hereditary monarchy had been restored for a time by the brave Maccabees. The Battle of Freedom had been won and lost many times. A usurper had sat on the throne of David. And now, at last, the country was completely under the mighty Roman power, which had extended its sway over the whole civilized world. It was divided into several small portions, which the foreigner held under different administrations, just as the English used to hold India. Galilee and Perea were ruled by petty kings, sons of that Herod under whom Jesus was born who occupied a relation to the Roman emperor similar to that which the subject Indian kings held to the English king. Judea was under the charge of a Roman official, a subordinate of the governor of the Roman province of Syria. Roman soldiers paraded through the streets of Jerusalem. Roman banners waved over the structures of the country. Roman tax gatherers sat at the gate of every town. 
to the Sanhedrin, the supreme Jewish agency of government, only a shadow of power was still conceded. Its presidents, the high priests, were mere puppets of Rome, set up and put down at the slightest impulse. The proud nation, whose ideal it had been to rule the world, and whose patriotism was a religious and national passion, as intense and unquenchable as ever burned in any country, had fallen low. The changes in religion had been equally great, and the fall had been equally low. In external appearance, indeed, it might have seemed as if progress had been made instead of decline. The nation was far more orthodox than it had been at many earlier periods of its history. Its main danger had once been idolatry, but the chastisement of the exile had corrected that tendency forever, and from then on the Jews, wherever they were living, were uncompromising monotheists. The priestly orders and offices had been thoroughly reorganized after the return from Babylon, and the temple services and annual feasts continued to be observed at Jerusalem with strict regularity. Besides, a new and most important religious institution had arisen that almost threw the temple and its priesthood into the background. This was the synagogue with its rabbis. It does not seem to have existed in ancient times at all, but was called into existence after the exile by reverence for the written word. Synagogues were multiplied wherever Jews lived. Every Sabbath they were filled with praying congregations. Exhortations were delivered by the rabbis. A new order of men created by the need for teachers to translate from Hebrew, which had become a dead language. Nearly the entire Old Testament was read over once a year in the hearing of the people. Schools of theology, similar to our divinity halls, had sprung up, in which the rabbis were trained and the sacred books interpreted. Despite all this religiousness, though, religion had sadly declined. The externals had been multiplied, but the inner spirit had disappeared. However crude and sinful the old nation had sometimes been, it was capable in its worst periods of producing majestic religious figures who kept high the ideal of life and preserved the connection of the nation with heaven, and the inspired voices of the prophets kept the stream of truth running fresh and clean. However, during four hundred years, no prophet's voice had been heard. The records of the old prophetic utterances were still preserved with almost idolatrous reverence, but there were not men with even the necessary amount of the Spirit's inspiration to understand what he had previously written. The representative religious men of the time were the Pharisees. As their name, meaning separated, indicates, they originally arose as champions of the separateness of the Jews from other nations. This was a noble idea, as long as the distinction emphasized was holiness. However, it is far more difficult to maintain this distinction than such external differences as distinctness of clothing, food, language, etc. Over time, these things were substituted for holiness. The Pharisees were impassioned patriots, always willing to lay down their lives for the independence of their country, and they hated the foreign yoke with zealous bitterness. They despised and hated other races, and clung with undying faith to the hope of a glorious future for their nation. 
They had so long repeated this idea that they had come to believe that they were themselves the special favorites of heaven, simply because they were descendants of Abraham, and they lost sight of the importance of personal character. They multiplied their Jewish distinctiveness, but they substituted external observances, such as fasts, prayers, tithes, washings, sacrifices, and so forth, for the grand distinctions of love to God and love to man. Most of the scribes belonged to the Pharisaic party. They were so called because they were both the interpreters and copyists of the scriptures and the lawyers of the people, for since the Jewish legal code was incorporated in the holy scriptures, jurisprudence became a branch of theology. They were the chief interpreters in the synagogues, although any male worshiper was permitted to speak if he chose. They professed absolute reverence for the scriptures, counting every word and letter in them. They had a splendid opportunity of imparting the religious principles of the Old Testament among the people, exhibiting the glorious examples of its heroes, and sowing abroad the words of the prophets. For the synagogue was one of the most effective methods of instruction ever devised by any people but they entirely missed their opportunity. They became a dry ecclesiastical and scholastic class, using their position for selfish exultation and scorning those to whom they gave stones for bread as a low and unlettered population. They passed over whatever was most spiritual, living, human, and grand in the scriptures. Generation after generation, the commentaries of their famous men multiplied and the students studied the commentaries instead of the text. Moreover, it was a rule with them that the correct interpretation of a passage was as authoritative as the text itself. The interpretations of the famous masters were automatically believed to be correct, and so the large volume of opinions that were held to be as precious as the Bible itself grew to enormous proportions. These were the traditions of the elders. Matthew 15.2 and Mark 7.3. By degrees, an arbitrary system of exegesis became popular, by which almost any opinion whatsoever could be connected with some text and stamped with divine authority. Every new invention of Pharisaic peculiarity was approved in this way. Peculiarities were multiplied until they regulated every detail of personal, domestic, social, and public life. They became so numerous that it required a lifetime to learn them all. The learning of a scribe consisted in becoming acquainted with them, along with the statements of the great rabbis and the forms of exegesis by which they were sanctioned. This was the chaff with which they fed the people in the synagogues. The conscience was burdened with innumerable details, every one of which was represented to be as divinely sanctioned as any of the Ten Commandments. This was the unbearable burden that Peter said neither he nor his fathers had been able to bear. Acts 15.10 This was the horrible nightmare that sat so long on Paul's conscience, but worse consequences flowed from it. It is a well-known principle in history that whenever the ceremonial is elevated to the same rank as the moral, the latter will soon be lost sight of. The scribes and Pharisees had learned how, by inconsistent exegesis and misleading discussion, to explain away the most serious moral obligation, 
and make up for the neglect of them by multiplying ritual observances. Thus, people were able to parade in the pride of sanctity while indulging their selfishness and sinful passions. Society was rotten with wickedness within and was covered over with a self-deceptive religiousness without. There was a party of protest. The Sadducees challenged the authority attached to the traditions of the fathers, demanding a return to the Bible and nothing but the Bible. They cried out for morality in place of ritual. However, their protest was prompted merely by the spirit of denial, rather than by a warm opposite principle of religion. They were skeptical, cold-hearted, worldly men. Although they praised morality, it was a morality unwarmed and unilluminated by any contact with the upper region of divine forces from which the inspiration of the highest morality must always come. The Sadducees refused to burden their consciences with the painful formalities and regulations of the Pharisees, but it was because they wanted to live a life of comfort and self-indulgence. They ridiculed the Pharisaic exclusivity, but they had let go of what was most distinctive in the character, the faith, and the hopes of the nation. They mingled freely with the Gentiles, affected Greek culture, enjoyed foreign amusements, and thought it useless to fight for the freedom of their country. An extreme branch of them were the Herodians, who had yielded to the usurpation of Herod, and with courtly flattery attached themselves to the favor of his sons. The Sadducees belonged mainly to the upper and wealthy classes. The Pharisees and scribes formed what we would call the middle class, although also deriving many members from the higher ranks of life. The lower classes and the country people were separated by a great gulf from their wealthy neighbors, but they attached themselves by admiration to the Pharisees, as the uneducated always do to the party of emotions. Down below all these was a large class of those who had lost all connection with religion and well-ordered social life, the publicans, prostitutes, and sinners, for whose souls no one cared. Such were the lamentable features of the society on which Jesus was about to discharge his influence. Israel was a nation enslaved. The upper classes devoted themselves to selfishness, flattery, and skepticism. The teachers and main professors of religion were lost in mere shows of ceremonialism, boasting that they were the favorites of God, while their souls were filled with self-deception and sin. The majority of the people were misled by false ideals, and seething at the bottom of society was a neglected mass of those indulged in shameless and unrestrained sin. And this was the people of God. Yes, despite their dreadful degradation, these were the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were the heirs of the covenant and the promises. Towering far back beyond the centuries of degradation were the figures of the patriarchs, the kings after God's own heart, the psalmists, the prophets, and the generations of faith and hope. Yes, and there was greatness in front, too. Once the word of God is sent forth from heaven and uttered by the mouths of his prophets, it cannot return to him void. Isaiah 55, 11. 
God had said that the perfect revelation of himself was to be given to this nation, that in it was to appear the perfect ideal of manhood, and that from it was to issue forth the regeneration of all mankind. Therefore, a wonderful future still belonged to it. The river of Jewish history was for the time choked and lost in the sands of the desert. But it was destined to reappear again and flow forward on its God-appointed course. The time of fulfillment was at hand, although the signs of the times might have seemed to forbid the hope. Had not all the prophets from Moses onward spoken of a great one to come, who, appearing just when the darkness was blackest, and the degradation deepest, was to bring back the lost glory of the past? More than a few faithful souls asked themselves that question during this weary and debased time. There are good people in the worst of times. There were good people even in the selfish and corrupt Jewish parties. Piety especially lingers in such times in the humble homes of the people. Just as we are permitted to hope that in the Roman Catholic Church at the present time there may be those who reach out to Christ despite all the ceremonies put between him and the soul, and by the selection of a spiritual instinct seize the truth and pass by the falsehood, so among the common people of Israel there were those who, hearing the scriptures read in the synagogues and reading them in their homes, instinctively neglected the cumbersome and endless comments of their teachers and saw the glory of the past, of holiness, and of God that the scribes failed to see. It was especially to the promises of a deliverer that such people focused their interest. Feeling bitterly the shame of national slavery, the hollowness of the times, and the awful wickedness that rotted under the surface of society, they longed and prayed for the advent of the coming one and the restoration of the national character and glory. The scribes also busied themselves with this aspect of the scriptures, and cherishing messianic hopes was one of their main distinctions from the Pharisees. However, they had distorted the prophetic utterances on the subject by their inconsistent interpretations, and they painted the future in colors borrowed from their own worldly imaginations. They spoke of the advent as the coming of the kingdom of God, and they spoke of the Messiah as the Son of God, But what they mainly expected him to do, by the working of miracles and by an irresistible force, was to free the nation from servitude and raise it to the utmost worldly greatness. They had no doubt that, simply because they were members of the chosen nation, they would be given high places in the kingdom. They never suspected that any change was needed in themselves to meet him. The more spiritual elements of eternity— holiness, and love were lost in their minds, clouded behind the bright light of earthly glory. Such was the aspect of Jewish history at the time when the hour of realizing the national destiny was about to strike. It gave a special complexity to the work that lay before the Messiah. It might have been expected that he would find a nation saturated with the ideas and inspired with the visions of his predecessors, the prophets, at whose head he might place himself, and from which he might receive an enthusiastic and effective cooperation. However, this was not so. He appeared at a time when the nation had wandered from their ideals and distorted their most noble features. 
Instead of meeting a nation mature in holiness and consecrated to the heaven-ordained task of blessing all other peoples, which he then could have easily led up to its own final development and then led forth to the spiritual conquest of the world, he found that the first work that lay before him was to proclaim a reformation in his own country and to encounter the opposition of prejudices that had accumulated there through centuries of degradation.